Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. book lover. I am so glad you are here listening to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. This show is a passion project for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy making it. I only interview authors whose books I have read and enjoyed, so if I am chatting with an author on the main show, it means that I really liked their book and feel comfortable recommending it to you. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I work hard to find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Are you looking for an engaging book community with unique bonus content? If so, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon community, which is filled with a wonderful group of readers. I offer three levels, page turners, lit lovers, and royal readers. And each level provides all sorts of cool bonus book content that you will not find elsewhere. If you're interested or want more information, the link to join is in my show notes. Today, I am chatting with Meg Kissinger about While You Were Out. Meg spent more than two decades traveling across the country writing about America's mental health system for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. A Pulitzer Prize finalist, she has won dozens of accolades. She teaches investigative reporting at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism and was a visiting professor at DePaul University, her alma mater. Her stories on the abysmal living conditions for people with mental illness inspired changes to state law and led to the creation of hundreds of new housing units. Meg lives in Milwaukee with her husband. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drink, A-G, the number one, dot com, slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. Welcome, Meg. How are you today? I am great. I am even greater for the chance to be with you. I'm so glad you're here. I loved your very powerful, sad, and important memoir while you were out, and I cannot wait to talk about it. Thank you. Before we dive into my questions, why don't you tell me a little bit about while you were out for those that haven't read it yet? Sure. So it's a story about my family. 
My family, I'm the fourth of eight kids. We were born in a span of 12 years back in the 1950s and 60s. And uh, that was very typical in the neighborhood that I grew up in, lousy with Irish Catholics. So lots of, lots of kids, rollicking, fun times. But in our family, as I later learned in many families, there was not a small amount of mental illness. And that was manifest in both my parents, who both struggled. Lovely, warm, funny, kind, good people, but really troubled with anxiety in the case of my mother and my father had bipolar. And um, just what the, the chaos that ensued. And as we each came up, it was revealed that many of us were struggling with mental illness in a time when we didn't know how to talk about that. And then also in a time when we were discouraged from talking about it and, and very, very much afraid. Right. And people didn't want to talk about it. I mean, it was a time when that stuff was swept under the rug. Yeah. You know, the, so World War II had ended. The baby boom was in full blast. Uh, we were all about just having fun. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to, you know, have be born into this family where my dad had a good job. So we had lots of things at our disposal, happy vacations and good schools and a nice house. And so to our, to the outside world, you know, we really looked to be the envy of the people that we knew. I remember our cousins who lived in Cincinnati didn't have as much money and I, and, and they always would say to us over the years, oh, we wish we could be in your family. Well, you know, money is one thing and it's great if you have it. Uh, but there are other struggles from within that our family contended with and sometimes not as gracefully as others. So this book is really meant to be, to bear witness to what that was like and to show maybe this new generation, these were the things that we didn't know. This is how shame, secrecy, silence can be toxic, especially as it relates to mental illness and how we really do need to treat it and look at it in the same way that we do other illnesses. I just thought over and over again, eight kids in 12 years. Oh my gosh, that would be a lot for someone who wasn't struggling with anything. That is so many children in a short amount of time. Right. Somebody once described it as cheaper by the dozen on acid. And that is a little <laughs> bit <laughs> what it was like. Uh, you know, I, it, it was a lot of fun. I mean, we, we, had, we had lots and lots of adventure and silly stories and our family loves, we love each other very much. But then again, as these problems began to surface, it was really a challenge and great sorrow and heartache, you know, followed. I was so sad for you at times when you were relaying some of your stories. But then on the flip side, as you mentioned, you had these wonderful siblings that were there to take the place sometimes of your parents when they couldn't be there. So I was at least happy for that part of it. And you did sound like you had a great childhood. There were just a lot of things happening in the background or sometimes in the forefront. Yeah, there were. And we didn't, we didn't have the language to discuss it. So, you know, as I write about in one of the earlier chapters, I'm five years old and we just moved back to Chicago from our year in Connecticut. And I, got, I came down for breakfast and my mother was gone. And no explanation, and I'm looking everywhere for her frantically, and um, it was never described to us. And later that day, 
my father whisks us off to an uncle's house. And we were frightened. Uh, We just didn't know. It was very disorienting. And it would only be years later that I would learn that my mother was hospitalized, you know, for postpartum depression. So that was the tone. There was a lot of mystery, and that led to anxiety and uneasiness. And she was gone several times, and you still never knew until you were a lot older what had happened, right? Yeah. We, and then we ultimately came to learn that she had struggled with anxiety, and so she was on medication. She, she like so many housewives, and really all of America at the time, was, was, uh, they were gobbling tranquilizers right and left. You know, I, I've, in my research for this and also in my journalism, have studied just what that was like in the late 50s when uh, medications like Milltown and ultimately Valium came onto the market. People were downing those things right and left, and they were just grasping for anything to help them cope with modern life. And you talk in your book about what that was like for your mom then in terms of how that impacted her and how it made her more remote. And as a child, it was hard to understand why she was remote. Yeah, she she seemed wistful. That's a word I didn't know when I was five or six years old. But she seemed like she was thinking of, of she was far away. She was unapproachable. No, she was so present for us physically. I don't know how many loads of laundry that lady did. (laughs) A lot of them. As I say in the book, she never once got our underwear piles mixed up, which is amazing to me. Five girls and three boys, and I never got my sister's underwear. So shout out to my mom. But uh, at the same time, she just always seemed to be like uneasy or searching for had a faraway look in her eye. and, And it was just hard to pin her down. Whereas my dad was very warm, boisterous, you know, erratic behavior. He would later go on to be diagnosed with bipolar, but we just saw him as having these very wild mood swings. And the way they both treated their their various conditions, you know, was very common in that day. So it was lots of booze, lots of tranquilizers, and that leaves a wide margin for calamity and kids wandering off whether it was in the case of my brother Billy down across the state highway, or in my case, off the pier of a, um, my cousin's lake house. So we had lots of misadventure in addition to our adventures. I know. I was thinking as I was reading some of those stories, I was like, oh, it's very lucky that you all are all still here. Yeah, well, two of us aren't, but... Well, I meant the ones that, that are. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, that's, my, that's my signature snark. Apologies for that. <laughs> yeah, but yes, we, we, all, we often remarked like, wow, there was such, such a high probability of physical calamity. And we, yeah, we were lucky. When did it dawn on you that your family was operating differently than some other families? I think many families probably we're operating similarly to yours, maybe not exactly like yours, but I think there's more going on behind closed doors than a lot of us think everywhere. But when did you get the feeling that maybe your family was different than some of the others? Uh, yeah, I think I think it really began, you know, on that morning when I came down looking for my mom. And then I remember a few months later, she was likewise gone. Again, I came downstairs and there was my grandmother and I suspected something was up. And I said to my grandmother, you know, what where is my mom? And he, she just said, she, she just kind of shooed me away like she was 
getting rid of a common house fly. And when I pressed her for a more specific answer, she just said, uh, I said, well, you know, the nuns will want to know. And they said, well, tell her, tell them she's got pneumonia. So I just, that, that little, that's where I'm kind of dropping a pin in my memory that I knew then that something was fishy. But again, there were so many big families with so much going on, you know, so many of, of my friends had brothers and sisters or parents who were also struggling, but we never, we just never talked about that. It just, and then later, I guess by the time my sister Nancy was in late middle school, maybe seventh grade or eighth grade, she really started showing signs of trouble. She was very naughty. You know, she would skip school and she would shoplift and she would get into my parents' liquor cabinet. And there started to be, you know, lots of uh, just turmoil around her behavior. So then you really started thinking, okay, this is not how it should be. Yeah. And then I guess the most dramatic example of that is when she came back from her sophomore year at the University of Colorado. And by then she'd gotten into a lot of trouble. She was starting to take drugs. This was now 1971 or two. And um, she'd had a car accident. Uh, And so she came home to recover from that. And while she was home, she had a very serious suicide attempt that required the the fire department coming to chop down the the bathroom door and it was really quite quite a trauma and that was kind of the point of no return for her my parents she survived that only to go on to have the next several years were just hellacious for her in and out of various psychiatric hospitals at first a very fancy private one that my mom and dad paid a lot of money for uh, and then when finally that their their funds either dwindled or vanished, you know, my sister ended up in a state mental hospital in Illinois. And it was just, it was a, a grim and dire existence for her. I really felt for her when I was reading all of that. I, I don't know what the answer is, but boy, oh, I, I really felt for Nancy. Yeah, same. And, you know, I bring this up in the book and it was really a you know kind of a gut wrenching thing to go back to those days and try and, and capture the chaos of that time. But I realized you know in my fourteen year old brain, uh, I was angry. I was the bratty little sister who was just fed up with all the commotion and all the heart heartache that her mental illness brought to our family, and I was embarrassed. I now know, as an older lady that she was she was suffering she was ill she wasn't bad she was she was suffering and that suffering was manifested in in bad behavior but i i have so much more empathy and compassion for her now than i did then and that was really one of my one of the saddest parts about writing this and realizing i wish i could have had those fuller conversations with her to let her know that i'm i'm so sorry that she was suffering but I don't think any 14-year-old is going to have that ability. And I think it's really hard to understand that when you're young. I think as an adult and you've lived long enough and seen enough things, you can understand it. But when you're young, it's taking up so much of your family's bandwidth. As you said, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's causing things that everyone is talking about. 
I mean, I think you should give yourself grace there for sure. Well, thank you so much. And I, and I do now, you know, but that was part of the process of writing this book was reckoning with that. And, and that's where the, you know, understanding comes in. And I, I'm grateful that I had that opportunity to do that. And I think that's another one of the big lessons I learned in writing this book was there is no Cliff Notes version of grief. So, you know, on the night that she died and when my father called us all into the living room to say, if anybody asks, this was an accident. And that was a scary thing to hear. And I, I've come to learn that he said that not out of, uh, not to be mean, but because he was afraid. He was afraid that Nancy would be judged, that they would be judged, that the Catholic Church that was very precious to him would not allow her to have a funeral and that she couldn't be buried in the in the family plot. So again, that toxicity of shame and disgrace really laid the groundwork for, you know, even more sorrow that would follow. Absolutely. So many things tied up in all of that. And to me, though, that is the trouble with mental illness. And I completely agree with the later portion of your book that our system is broken in terms of how it handles it. But I think mental illness is tough because it really can impact families in damaging ways that physical illnesses sometimes don't. And people that are mentally ill don't always want to take their medicine. And I think that there are there's a lot of lashing out at times. I think there are so many different things that are outside our control and harder to understand and deal with. And it's harder on families sometimes, I think. So I don't know what the answer is. I think it can be really, really difficult. Yeah. The, yeah. We don't get the casseroles and the get well cards and the other support that, you know, I, I thought about this so much. If Nancy had had leukemia, for example, there'd be such a system of support around her. But because it was bipolar and she had this, you know, many bouts of suicidal ideation, many suicide attempts, there was not that comfort afforded to her or afforded to us. That's true. I don't mean it in a whiny way. And and that's one thing that I really fought against in this book. There were two things I was very intentional about. Number one, not wanting to to have this be a pity party. This wasn't meant to be, oh, poor me and the poor Kissinger family. And I didn't want it to come across that way. And that's why I did sprinkle in, you know, quite a lot of anecdotes about really the, all the fun and, and, the, and the privilege that we had. And then and the second one is I didn't want it to be like exacting a score and be whiny. I didn't want it to be pointing fingers in a, in a mean way. Now, I, I very much did want to point out the flaws in the system and show how it fell short and what needs to be done, what what is being done in some quarters now and that I'm glad to see, but I, I was trying to avoid the kind of poor me and kind of what my dad used to call stinking thinking to <laughs> go back and re, re-prosecute the past. Absolutely. And I feel like you avoided both of those. I guess I just feel like also they're not two things that can be compared very equally. And so it's difficult. I agree completely on the, the comparison to if she had leukemia versus what she has. But I also feel like like it's difficult to think you have this child and your your mom would have to just sit there with her 24 hours a day or, or rotate people. I just think there's a lot more that goes into mental illness. And so it's hard to always know, okay, exactly how can we approach this? 
versus if you have leukemia, you go and you get chemotherapy. And I mean, it's a very laid out, straightforward process. It's not with mental illness at all. Different things work for different people and it's very different. Exactly. Well said. And I think it's harder to know exactly what the best approach is going to be and how to handle it. But I think you're right. Talking about it, seeking help, at least that's a start. Yeah, absolutely. So what surprised you the most when writing while you were out? Mm, well, I, I learned a lot. <laughs> I learned a lot about my family. My and, and you know, I guess this sounds really nutty to say, but it kind of goes back to what I've been saying all throughout our talk here today. So when I sat down and kind of cataloged all that happened in our family, it was really stunning to me to see that all in one place. Because when you're living with this, when you're living in a chaotic family with, you know, all the all that comes with that, you don't you don't stop to think, wow, this is we're really this is really out of whack. It's just the life that you know. So when I sat down and put it all together and then was, you know, kind of creating the arc of the story, I really became overwhelmed to think, wow, this family went through a lot. A lot. I mean, truly a lot. Yes. So it didn't feel like it in real time, but reflecting on it now, so many years later, it was was overwhelming. And um, so that was one thing. I learned so many like little things. And I, I learned my sister, Patty, my dear sister, who was my roommate, and she and I were the little tiger pit pals. We, <laughs> we thought tigers lived in the, in the, underneath our beds. And I, I opened the book by, you know, uh, talking about the tiger pit and how we used to jump over it. And we tried to hold hands falling asleep, you know, so uh, protecting our, each one another against the tigers. Anyway, I, it was only in, in very recently, as I was really putting the finishing touches on this book, that I came to learn that Patty had been hospitalized for depression in Milwaukee, where I was a reporter many years later, and very, very aggressively covering the shortfallings of the psychiatric or the mental health uh, facilities in Milwaukee, never knowing that my, my beloved sister had been a patient there. There was a lot that I learned about each of my siblings and, and really the struggles that we had in the years following Nancy's death that we didn't share with one another. I left for college and really never moved back home. I, I came home for summers, for a few summers, but but then got a job and went on my way. You know, we always stayed in touch at the holidays and this is in the land before, you know, cell phones and text messaging, but it, it was hard to kind of keep a bead on everybody. So in researching this book, I really learned a whole lot more about Again, what my what the fallout from Nancy's death, which then of course extended to my brother Danny's death nineteen years later, and really the that was really a big wallop. You know, it was it's one thing to to have one of your siblings die by suicide, but when a second one does, it was just devastating. And we really felt like shouldn't we have known better? Wasn't there more we could have done to save him? And those were gut-wrenching questions to ask. Absolutely. And also, in addition to those questions, worrying, is there going to be another? Am I going to struggle myself? I mean, I would think those questions would also arise. Oh, yeah. So being the kind of sassy, snarky family we are, we said at Danny's funeral, my sister Patty said, okay, everybody, no three-peats. <laughs> and so, um, and that's the way we dealt with stuff, you know. 
we dealt with it first and foremost by making a wise crack about it because it helped us. It helped us kind of emotionally right the ship. So there were there was a lot of gallows humor, which I share in this book. And some of which I actually I took some of the stuff out and then I put it back. There's a there's a scene in there about going to a suicide support group, which actually was run by the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church has come a long way in my mind in reaching out and ministering to families who experience suicide. And one of them was this loss meeting, uh, this meeting in Chicago, where they built, they made quilt squares for each of your loved ones who died by suicide. Anyway, I won't spoil the scene, but there was a very sassy remark by my brother, Jake, that had us all in stitches. No pun intended, because it was a quilt. (laughs) But anyway, that's how we dealt with it. We dealt with our tragedy by making first by making fun of it and only later by sitting with it and reflecting and amazingly so many years later finally availing myself of therapy which is something that I didn't do until very late in the game that's what i was just going to say next i was amazed that you had not talked to anybody yourself until so much later in your life i don't know how you managed to survive all of that without unburdening yourself to someone else who could help you process some of it. Oh my God. Can you believe it? I know. No. That, that, that to me is one of the most shocking things. How does somebody put up with, you know, the suicide deaths of, the, of a brother and a sister and then all the other flack and not go to a therapist? That's just amazing to me. But anyway, I didn't. And now I did and I'm better for it. And I would urge all your listeners, if you are struggling, do not be a hero and think you can do it yourself. Talk to somebody and, and uh, you'll, you'll really be glad that you did. Absolutely. I think that is very important. And you talk about that toward the end of the book and suicide prevention hotlines and all of that. So what do you think the next steps are to try to continue to work on our mental health and our healthcare system and how it addresses mental health? Thank you for asking that. Uh, well, there's a lot that we can do. And it starts with paying attention to people that we love and noticing if they're struggling, asking them, do they, do they feel safe? Have they made a plan? Do they feel like hurting themselves? You, can, you will sit with them and talk with them, help them get help, help them find a therapist or a, or a medical professional to talk to right off the bat. That's at the very basic level. But in society, there's so much more that we can do. We can Make it easier for people to access mental health care by not throwing up these ridiculous barriers by insurance companies capping the number of visits or getting pre-approval. They make it very difficult to access mental health care. And the reimbursement is so poor that many doctors won't even take insurance. You have to pay out of pocket, which really eliminates the possibility for many people they can't afford it. Beyond that, Things like medications, which really, by and large, haven't improved in decades. So research and the number of doctors available. Uh, half of all counties in the United States don't have a psychiatrist. Uh, that's a shocking statistic. And so there's, there's, there's a lot that we can do in, in, just in terms of promoting greater access. That sounds so flabby and kind of bureaucratic. But I would just say on a, on a very, on a day-to-day basic level, 
be present to one another. Have the, don't be afraid to have these conversations with people who are suffering and, and let them know that you are there to sit with them and to listen to them and to help them. And I think your point earlier was very valid too. When you know a family that is struggling with something like this, treat it like you treat it that they had somebody with leukemia. Reach out to them. Can we help you? Can we provide meals? What can we do? And I think that that is very useful as well. Yeah, we have to take away the shame of mental illness. And and this is another thing that I, I write about in the book, about my brother Danny's letter to me that he wrote the week before he died. And in it, he talked about his own mental illness and acknowledged it for the first time ever. Previously, he had denied that he had mental illness, which we all knew that was ridiculous. He clearly did. But anyway, in this letter, Danny talked about how awful it is to live with this and how you say and do awkward things. And he said something that to me at the time sounded so cheesy, but I now, looking back on it, find it to be so profound. And what Danny said was only love and understanding can conquer this. And after he died, I wrote those words down on a piece of paper and I taped it to the side of my computer in the newsroom. And for the next 25 years, really made it my battle cry. And, and that's what I did. I went all around the country. I interviewed people who were living with serious mental illness and really asked two basic questions. You know, why is it that we don't do a better job helping these people and, and what can we do? So Danny's words really set me off on a path in my reporting. And then that ultimately led to this book. And, and that's what I really believe, that if you love somebody, you'll try to understand them, and then you'll try and get them help. Absolutely. Which leads us into my next question, which is your title. Why you came up with this title and what it means. Sure. So uh, While You Were Out comes from, again, kind of a goofy family story. I was a freshman in college, and I came back to the dorm for lunch. And this was in 1979, so the days before cell phones. And there was a little pink slip in my mail slot. And there were just two words written on the while you were out slip. And it just said, Grandma died. And I thought, what? So I ran down the hall to the payphone, called my mother. And she said, oh, yeah, sorry about that. I had so many people to call. And that, yeah, thank you for laughing. I just was like, oh my gosh, I couldn't even imagine. Yeah. I had so many people to call. You're like, thanks, mom. Right. And not like I expected her to like send in a grief counselor or something, but, you know, maybe a little more than a two word note on a while you were out note. And I ultimately came to realize that that was kind of a metaphor for how our family communicated intense information. And we just either dispatched of it quickly, blithely, or comically, uh, when really we needed to sit down and have fuller, uh, more helpful conversations. And I thought that kind of tied in with Danny's note in a way. Definitely. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, before we wrap up, Meg, what have you read recently that you would recommend? Okay. So three books that I love. One of them is uh, Lost and Found, Catherine Schultz, beautiful book, came out a couple years ago. I just love it. I love it so much. I read it twice. There's a fantastic book called Never Simple by Liz Shire, who is the daughter of a woman who had uh, borderline personality disorder. 
And it is at once hilarious and heartbreaking. Uh, and she comes to, uh, she wrote the book because she, it's the book that she wanted to read. Uh, and then the, and then finally a book called the scar by Mary Cregan, beautiful book about her struggle with her suicidal, uh, her attempt at suicide or failed attempt, obviously. Um, and just beautifully written. Those all sound very powerful and that they tie in a little bit with yours. Right. Well, Meg, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was wonderful. I so appreciate it too. Thank you. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. My name's Adam Sokol, and I'm the host of the Passions and Prologues podcast. Every week, best-selling authors like Jenny Jackson, Rebecca Mackay, Lisa Scottolini, or Brad Meltzer come on to my show to talk about, yes, their new books, but more importantly, the things that they're crazy passionate about. We've talked about the Muppets, powerlifting, traveling, gardening, home improvement, and so much more. We dig into why these things are their passions, how they inspire their writing, and where they came to fall in love with these random assorted things. Be sure to subscribe to the Passions and Prologues podcast wherever you get your podcasts and check out evergreenpodcast.com to learn more. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy this show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.